Good morning. Let me extend my welcome to you, those of you who've been a part of Blacknell for a while, uh, those of you who've just started coming to Blacknell, those of you who are with us here in Durham, those who are outside of Durham but able to be with us through uh, this technology, welcome and pray uh, that uh, you would sense uh, God's welcome, the sense of belonging to one another, even though we can't be together. Uh, grateful that we get to worship the Lord together. Uh, if, if you are new to Blacknell, please make yourself known to us. We would love to uh, get in touch with you. Send us an email, uh, be on our website, uh, let us know, and, and we'd love to connect you with life and that we share together here, here at Blacknell. We are continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, and we come to chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Listen then again to God's word to us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our world is a mess. Our nation is a mess. We are divided, angry, bitter, distrustful. We have no shared truth. We don't even have a shared sense of reality. We cannot even agree on what really happened. We are fearful. And so we arm ourselves with guns. We bought more guns in 2020 than any year on record. We arm ourselves with anger. We take advice, take the advice of the old clash song, let fury have the hour, anger can be power, do you know that you can use it? As bad as it has become, this is nothing new. This is who we are. We are sinful human beings who do not get along with each other. And we believe that Jesus Christ came to save us from all of this. Jesus came not just to ras rescue us by rapturing us off, off to heaven, but he came to save us by changing us, transforming us into his image, a new creation. He came to transform us into who we were created to be in the first place. This is what we have been learning as we have been looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul, in the first three chapters, lays out how God has rescued us, made us his children, united us together into one family, and given us a great and cosmic purpose. In chapter 4, he begins to lay out how we are to live this out, especially in the church. 
Chapter 4 ends with a command, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And chapter 5 then begins with the commands, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But Paul is not content with a general command of live in love. As is characteristic of our God, he gets specific. Today we're going to look at the specifics of how we need to be transformed when it comes to the relationship of marriage. But if you are not married, this message is still for you because Paul's message to us has implications beyond just the marriage relationship, but for all of those relationships that are a mess right now. Let me give you a brief roadmap for this sermon. I want us to recognize the the nature and depth of the problem by first looking at what God intended and how far we have fallen from that. And then I want us to look at Paul's message to us in this chapter and to see how it is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's intention for us in marriage is given in the picture in picture form in Genesis chapter 2 that we read earlier. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to look at Genesis chapter 2 with me. And in verse 18, God says, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. The word helper here does not mean a servant or a slave. It's the same Hebrew word that is used to describe God as our helper. It is a word that describes a partner. That's why when God creates all of the animals, we are told in verse 20, then all the animals, no suitable helper was found. No golden retriever, no border collie, no horse or oxen. As helpful as any of them may be, none of them were a suitable helper. And so God makes the man fall asleep, and while he's sleeping, takes rib and, and fashions and forms a woman and brings her to Adam. When Adam sees her, he exclaims, This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He affirms that here is finally a a partner, an equal, not just a servant, but bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And Genesis then gives us this picture of God's intention. And it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame, it says in verse 25. This is God's intention, that man and woman, equal partners, united, one flesh, still two individuals, but united with nothing between them, naked, with nothing to hide, able to fully trust the other in complete intimacy, intimacy, known and being known, and no shame, no shame. And then (laughs) we know what happens, right? Genesis 3 happens. You know the story. The serpent comes along and tempts Eve and Adam and they doubt God's good command. They refuse to submit to God and eat the fruit of the one forbidden tree and immediately, immediately they are shamed and they cover themselves. There is a loss of intimacy and they hide themselves from the Lord and from each other. When the Lord asks Adam what happened, Adam says, well, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. 
What happened to bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh? He couldn't even say it. It's our fault, right? No, she did it. She did it. The unity is broken. And then when God announces the curse for what they have done, he tells the woman in verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Instead of partnership and unity and intimacy that God intended, now we find ourselves in conflict. The woman desiring her husband, but he is ruling over her. Now there's hierarchy. Now there's one who is ruler and one who is ruled over. Now there is conflict and battle of wills, a battle of who will rule, who will be in charge. And the man will win the battle, not because this is what God intended, but because of sin. This is the world we live in, where there is this conflict of who will have the power, whether that is in Washington, or in our workplaces, or in our marriages, even in our marriages. We are messed up, even in the most intimate relationship with the person in the world I love the most, more than any other, there is this conflict, this brokenness. And Paul wants to speak into this here in Ephesians chapter 5. Because Christ came, Paul tells us back in Ephesians chapter 2, because he came, he is our peace. And where Paul in chapter 2 is talking about Jews and Gentiles being reconciled is also true of men and women. For Christ in his flesh, he has made both groups, men and women, into one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. How do we do this? Well, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 tell us that it happens by our being imitators of God as beloved children. It happens by our living or walking in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. In verse 18, Paul tells us it happens by our being filled with the Spirit. This command to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18 in the Greek is followed by three participle phrases. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means singing songs, it means giving thanks, and it means submitting to one another in our verse 21. The way we overcome this conflict-ridden mess we are in, Paul says, is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's interesting, the word translated reverence is actually the Greek word for fear, phobos. Just about everywhere else in the New Testament is translated as fear. And I think maybe we should translate this word as fear here as well. Submit to one another out of fear of Christ. We don't like this word, submit, right? And, and so we ignore it or we interpret it to make it mean something that we're just a little bit more comfortable with. But Jesus lived his life in submission. Jesus submitted himself unto death, even death on a cross. Out of fear of Christ, then can we not also submit to one another? How can I face Christ and say that I chose not to submit when he himself submitted to my sin? This whole passage then falls under this command for mutual submission. This is true in marriage. This is true in the church. This is true in relationships. But let's think specifically about this in a marriage. If you are a wife and you want to get your husband to do what you want him to do or even just to get him to do what you need him to do, 
How can you do that? I think we all know that the most powerful tool in your toolbox is your anger. If you get angry enough, you can get him to do what you want him to do. Let fury have the hour. Anger can be power. Do you know that you can use it? I suspect all of us do know you can use it. It's a tool that we are all tempted to use. It's why we live in a society that seems to be perpetually angry, right? Because anger gives us power. But it does not get us, get for us what we long for. You might be able to get your husband or your wife to do what you want them to do, but it will not lead to your greater unity or greater intimacy or a deeper sense of shared purpose and partnership. Instead, it leads us into greater distrust. and We develop a system of counting debits and credits and living life looking for that opportunity when I get to be angry this time. I get to have the power this time. Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. This is what Jesus did. He submitted himself to the Father. This is not more hierarchy. Jesus was still God, co-equal with the Father. But he submitted himself to the point of giving himself up for us, even to the extent of dying on a cross. And out of that came life and peace and reconciliation. Let's admit, this is foolishness, right? It makes no sense to us. But it is how God works. It is how the gospel works. How does God get us to want what he wants? How does he get us to trust him? He submits himself to being born in a manger, a baby. We're not afraid of a baby. He walks among us, not as one who came to be served, but one who came to serve, taking the form of a servant. And most gloriously, he does it by submitting himself to dying for us on a cross. How does the church win our argument with the world? It's not by elections and amassing more political power than the heathen. It is by service and sacrifice and the risk of laying down our very existence to love and to serve. It is real risk. Maybe our church will die as we love and serve and give ourselves away. In a marriage, what does this look like? Wives, let me encourage you to invite your husband to be the head. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam's sin was one of passivity. He was present, but he was passive. He did not speak when the serpent tempted Eve. He did not respond when Eve suggested that they should eat the fruit. He just simply went along passively. Perhaps they might have, you could argue for plausible deniability, one of my favorite tactics. He was passive. When our children were small, we homeschooled them for many years. And I say we, but really, mainly it was Kim. But we used a curriculum that that uh, each year focused on specific character traits that you wanted to teach and to instill in your children. And at the beginning of each school year, Kim would pull me aside and she'd say, David, what do you hope for our children? What character traits do you think they need? What character traits would you like to see 
being built into them in this year that we need to develop. And Kim was asking me to be the head, to lead, to at least be present, to be engaged, to be connected, to participate in what the rest of the family was doing. I don't know about you, but this sermon feels scary to me because this passage has been abused by so many for so long. Men have used this to abuse their wives. But what God is doing, what God wants, what Paul is trying to help us to see is that God wants us to get back to Genesis chapter 2. That doesn't happen by wives doing battle with their husbands. And it doesn't happen by men abusing or dominating their wives. This passage is not about men being in charge and women having to do whatever they are told. It is about a marriage that is being transformed into Genesis chapter 2. That happens by men loving their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Paul elaborates on this in verses 26 to 32. Christ gave himself up for the church so that that she could be holy, full of splendor and without blemish, this beautiful image of this beautiful bride, the church. Husbands, your job, your calling is to give yourself up to this high purpose of helping your wife grow and mature into the full beauty of who God created her to be. That means you are honoring her, encouraging her, calling out the gifts that you see in her, and you are helping your children to do the same. You are to love her. Three times, Paul tells us in this chapter, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Love your wives. Be the head of the family in taking the lead in loving. Don't sit back and wait for her to love or to act first. Love first and keep loving. My goal is not her submission, but her flourishing. Am I loving her well enough that she's so, so that she is not afraid to submit to me? If not, how can I love her better? Is she flourishing more now, becoming the beautiful woman God created her to be, than she was when you first fell in love with her, or when you first married her? What kind of a job have you done? and loving her into that beautiful person God created her to be. This sermon is scary. It's scary because what Paul is saying requires God to be present. What if? What if I submit and he walks all over me? What if I love her and love her and love her and she never responds? What if I am submitting, but he or she is still doing battle? Will I survive? Yes, it is scary. Dying on the cross was scary. Would the Father raise Jesus to life? Yes, certainly. But God had to act. God needs to act in our marriages as well. Beloved, particularly young people, as you consider marriage now, someday, this is why it is so important for us to marry someone who is a believer, someone who knows Christ, who knows the grace of Christ as well. That's no guarantee that your marriage will be great, 
but I think it is necessary. We need to live because we need to live in the hope that the Holy Spirit dwells in my husband or in my wife as well as in me. Believe, have the hope that God is working in my spouse as God hopefully is working in me as well. I tell this story just about it every time I do premarriage counseling. When I was in college, my freshman year in college, I had a job in the cafeteria in the, the dish line. Uh, in the basement where all the dirty dishes came, there was a conveyor belt, and they would throw the trays with the dirty dishes on there, and, and there were six or seven of us on the line, and each person had a particular job to do, to take off the silverware, to take off the glasses cups, to take off the trash, to take off you know, the big little plates, and then the last person on the line, the most important job was to take off the trays and the big plates. Most important because if that person got stuck, the whole line got stuck, and slowed us down. And so they usually had a professional at that last spot on the line. And, and most of the time, it was uh, these Portuguese men, Portuguese immigrants, and uh, they barely spoke English. And they were incredible how fast they could do this job at the end of the line. I remember the first time that I worked there, I had the job of silverware. And I was picking the silverware out. And again, it was going really fast. You had to really focus and, and move really quickly. And, and I felt like I was doing a pretty good job of it, right? But then one spoon snuck behind one of the plates so I couldn't see it. And it went all the way down. I got to the end of the line and the Portuguese guy grabbed off the plate, right? And there was a spoon and he grabbed the spoon and he threw it back up the line. And, not my job, not my job. And I jumped and, you know, grabbed the spoon. I tell that story because I think in marriage we have to remember what our job is. My job is not to convince Kim to submit to me. My job is to love her as well as I possibly can, that she can become the woman she's supposed to be. My job is not to tell her all the ways I think she should love me better. My job is to love her as best I can. And thank God, I'm married to a woman who has the Holy Spirit in her, whose job it is, is to convict her of how she is to love, respect me as her husband. I'll close with this picture you perhaps have heard me tell it before. But C.S. Lewis tells the story of what heaven and hell look like and describes hell as being this incredible banquet feast with every possible good food you could want at it. And the people in hell are seated around this table, and but they all have a splint on their arms so they can grab the food, they can touch it, they can smell it, but they can't get it up to their mouth. And so it's perpetually this beautiful thing that intended to be eaten, but they can't eat it. And, and this is what hell is. And then Lewis goes on to say, this is what heaven is. The exact same scene, the exact same incredible spread of food, the exact same splint on each person's arm. Except in, this, in heaven, each person grabs that which their neighbor most wants to eat and takes and feeds their neighbor. Love it. That is a picture for us. Genesis 2 of what God intended, not only for what marriage looks like, but what church looks like, what our fellowship, what our community looks like, what God intends, who God intends for us to be. Beloved, let us live in submission to another out of fear of Christ, and let us love one another as God in Christ has loved us and given himself up for us. Let us pray. Lord God, 
We give you thanks for his vision of who you've called us to be. As husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters, as your people. Help us to move towards it, to live into this transformed reality. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.